Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you again. And uh, today being Trinity Sunday, I want to start by saying glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be. Amen. Last Sunday I taught that through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that God is for us. There are no dead ends, and we can be steady in hard times. Today I'd like to expand on that a bit, because today is Trinity Sunday. If God is Trinity and totally for us, how can we love our triune God in return? That's the question I'd like to ask. But first, a story. Maximus, the confessor, was an abbot in the early 600s in what we call Turkey now. Uh, He was a brilliant writer and teacher of the doctrines that were set out in the Fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon in 451. At Chalcedon, the church had decided that Jesus had two wills, a divine will and a human will, and yet was one person. They also decided on the doctrine of Trinity, that is, three persons united into one being. And this is what we teach today, even many, many generations, centuries later. During Maximus' time, a new theological trend emerged that said Jesus only had one will, fusing together the divine and the human aspects of his nature. Uh, This idea seemed reasonable at the time, and the bishop of Constantinople, who of course was leading the church, espoused this new doctrine. So this became a flashpoint of controversy since Maximus also had a following. The bishop tried Maximus for heresy in 658. Maximus, of course, stood firm. So the bishop put Maximus in prison, but from prison Maximus could still write. So they cut off his right hand so he couldn't write anymore. But Maximus could still preach, so they cut out his tongue. Finally, after much suffering, Maximus died on August 13th, 662. He was 82 years old. Imagine doing this to an old man over whether Jesus had one will or two. Less than 20 years later, in 681, the Sixth Ecumenical Council met and declared Maximus innocent of heresy. Just a bit late, don't you think? On Trinity Sunday, I'd say we would do well to learn of Maximus and the difficulty that the church has had in understanding the nature of Jesus incarnate and the Trinitarian God. If you have trouble with this truth, you're not alone. The first point I want to make is that the difficulty of the Trinity tells us that rational logic alone will not help us learn to know God and love him. In our text, though Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in verse 17, I would say Paul did not have a developed doctrine of Trinity. You actually can't get that directly from Scripture. This doctrine, as we've already seen, developed organically and in pain over history. Let's just review a little bit from the Bible exactly kind of what happened. So in Exodus, God introduced himself to Moses as the I am, and of course uh, to the children of Israel commanded there would be no other gods before him. But the Old Testament history is full of Israel's struggle to capture monotheism. Uh, 
actually 600 years of that kind of labor occurred until finally, after the exile, Israel began to grasp monotheism. From about 400 BC on, after resettling Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, they finally cemented their belief in one God. And then Jesus came. And that triggered a whole new calibration. And we can see a little bit of that calibration in the New Testament. Mark is the earliest gospel writer, and he ends his book with the resurrection of Jesus, but he also ends it with a lot of doubt on the part of disciples whether or not that actually was the case. But John's gospel, uh, written several decades later, late in the first century, lands. He calls Jesus the I Am, and he refers, of course, that's indirect reference to uh, the God of Exodus. And then yet, still things, uh, things still took time. The church decided on the deity of Jesus in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. The deity of the Holy Spirit was decided in 381, about 60 years later. And then finally, as I said, the doctrine of Trinity was settled in 451 in Chalcedon. But again, as we saw with Maximus, it could ebb and flow. You may be interested to know that in the 1500s, Martin Luther actually did not like the doctrine of Trinity and wanted to reject it. And in fact, some Anabaptists, our forebears, did reject it because it wasn't directly in the Bible. And even later, in the 1700s, some religious leaders were very hostile to the doctrine of Trinity. They favored a religion of reason, and they thought this doctrine seemed to be a relic of our superstitious past. So the difficulty of the doctrine of Trinity tells us that God is like nothing that exists, nothing at all. God is not just other than the other gods or different than the power of our imagination or even something like different than our greatest fears. Uh, as one writer puts it, God is another other. He's so completely different. He cannot be compared to anything we know. And so while we use our minds to know God, we cannot use an exclusively rational path to know God. It will always leave us gaps and shortfalls. And by analogy, I'd like you to think about falling in love. You know, we use our minds to get to know another person. We might arrange dates where we can chat and we can talk about things and find common ground, experience some things together. But when that first kiss happens, or when you're embraced in each other's arms, suddenly everything gets put on a different plane. It's beyond then the intellect to emotional and psychological and physical, right? Where both people are conscious of love. God is so other. His nature resists knowing him only through rational logic, through the intellect. God invites us to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So how can we do that? Can we love God beyond logic? And the answer to that question, of course, is yes. I'm quite convinced. And the pathway to that is through contemplation. And I mentioned that last week. Let me talk about that a little bit more. Contemplation, the use of our imagination, employs a different part of our mind, a different part of our whole being. 
Uh, and I realize that some evangelical voices warn us against contemplation. Um, our new pastor, Greg Weintz, preached uh, about, uh, quoted R Richard Foster in a message last year, and a handful of our members of our church met with him to tell him that their favorite U.S. American evangelical preacher warns against Richard Foster. No, it's actually the other way around. Remember, Paul says in our text, he prays that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which we've been called, right? How do you get there except by using something other than your pure intellect? The Christian mystics are really important to us. The men and women, past and current, who have influenced our lives. They teach us how to love God in greater fullness than mere intellect. So, Julian of Norwich, you've probably heard of, Teresa of Avila, and her good friend, John of the Cross. Modern-day mystics like Thomas Merton or Thomas Keating, Richard Foster. Uh, current writers from the Catholic tradition like Simone Campbell and Richard Rohr have helped me practically. All of these people have reached a love beyond the intellect, beyond rational logic. Many have seen visions of Jesus. These people are good guides to know and to love God with mind, yes, of course, and heart and strength and soul. Uh, personally, I've meditated quite a bit uh, on thoughts by James Finley, who's also a Catholic uh, leader. James grew up in a very rough household. His dad beat uh, his mother and him a lot. He was an abused child. And he heard directly from God one time as a nine-year-old hiding under the covers in his bed while his dad beat his mom outside his door. And so his teaching is coming out of a great deal of suffering and learning. And one of his thoughts has become very precious to me. God's love for us, for you, is so complete that if at the count of three he would cease to love you, at the count of three you would cease to exist. I've thought about that so much. Uh, he also has a great, paint, a great picture that he's painted I've been thinking about a lot. Imagine you're at the ocean. And you could be at the ocean or even Lake Winnipeg or you know something like a really big, vast body of water. And you're standing there and it's going all the way to the horizon as far as you can see. And it's just huge. And let's just imagine that's God's love, the ocean of God's love for you and for me. And... You're standing there ankle deep in the water. You may only be ankle deep in the water and yet you are in the ocean. But you're out there and you're watching and there's people surfing and they're enjoying the waves and there's people swimming and off in the distance you see a boat and you know that people are jumping off that boat and they're scuba diving. They're deep in the water and they're experiencing the ocean of God's love in totally different ways than you are. You are here ankle deep. And yet, you know that if you wanted to, you could walk out. You could go um, knee deep, waist deep. You can go in over your head. You can go in where it's a thousand feet deep. You can go in where it's 10,000 feet deep. You know that this vast, vast ocean is there. It's the ocean of God's love. God's love hits me because I've opened my heart 
in moments of contemplation, when I could be quiet, and where I've used my imagination to experience God's love for me. And then, sometimes really unusual surprises hit me. I was driving home from Calgary one time, and I put on Dave Brubeck's Christ, uh, Christmas album, the jazz great, you know, and he was playing Joy to the World. And the rendition, or his particular arrangement of this, hit me in a really unusual way. And it was almost like as I was driving, I could see the incarnation happening, and I could see earth receiving her king. Um, and in that moment, I just was flooded with this great sense of God's connection with the world. And actually, I started crying, and then I was wondering if I was going to drive off the road because I couldn't see where I was going. Uh, Simone Campbell has a great book for basic contemplative practice called Hunger for Hope. It's super accessible. It points the reader towards postures, towards how to be quiet, how to think, how to focus. It's a really practical tool. Uh, last week, I talked about my morning ritual that combines prayer and embodiment and what I called a, uh, doing a square breathing in a Trinitarian way. You know, day to day, God might seem close, he might seem far, you know, it doesn't really matter actually. I just put myself there daily, in quiet, to make space for God to touch me at a really open level, just to learn to love God, another other kind of being. Now this is essential because contemplation um, prepares us for the second half, the second part. Jesus, uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And contemplation gets us to that second part of the command. And here we need to learn something very special about the Trinity. And this is going to be my second point. The Trinity sets the template for love. The Trinity sets the template for love. We read John, uh, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And actually John says it a couple of times at least in that book. How does that work? Well, straightforwardly, the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The three together, loving the three persons, loving one another eternally. And, uh, you know, this isn't just like, you know, three guys having a tea party or three guys having a beer and throwing a ball around, you know, like guys do. This is something different. It's special. Um, it's ultra-personal. It's ultra-relational. And it's also powerful. God is energetic. And he's at work, as I tried to implicate last, last week. The Trinitarian template of love is best revealed in creation. But actually, it's taken modern physics to show it. And just like uh, the Trinity took a long time to uh, for people to understand, uh, I think the relationship between our understanding of the Trinity and creation has taken us several thousand years to pick up. Uh, and here I'm working off the Catholic author Elia Delio. And she works through this shift in thinking about God that we need to make in light of science history. And I say this for our encouragement. In Bible times, 
People thought that the world was flat, immovable, and that God made the sun circle around the earth every day, that when it rained, it was God opening up the doors of heaven so that the rain would come down, or when it thundered, it was God speaking, right, shouting at us. Even though they were wrong about how the universe worked, God was intimately part of the picture of everyday activity, and that was a good thing. But then, in Galileo's time, 1610, about Galileo confirmed that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. And Newton wrote a book, a physics book, that interpreted Galileo's ordered universe. Now, the Roman Catholic Church fought this, partly because it forced a new way to interpret the Bible. And also they were dealing with the Reformation. So they had a lot of politics on their hands. So the result was science and theology split where it always used to be together. And it disconnected God from creation. And then, what, a couple of hundred years later, Darwin seemed to nail God's coffin shut. By now, we know there's no up or down in space. We know the universe is astronomically vast. And we also know at the micro level that atoms and particles behave differently than what Newton's physics showed. We know that matter, from Einstein, uh, we know that matter is really energy. And so we have to think differently about how God relates to creation. And this has been done. Theologians like Karl Barth and many others put God, physics, and even evolution together in new ways. God is not up there like he's operating a remote control, which is the normal way we think about God. God is right here, everywhere present, filling all things. I was standing on the tarmac of uh, the Kinshasa airport in uh, Congo. I was coming home from an ICOM visit. I was waiting to board my plane and I was humming to myself, how great is our God? You know, and those words hit home to me suddenly. It says, age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. How great is our God. And I'm standing there, and suddenly it's like I could see God in every molecule, every person around me, everything that I could see, even the trees. God totally surrounded me, and I dwelled in this supernatural peace and awe for just a moment. My contemplation met science in my heart and not just in my mind. Dr. Delio writes that all matter, that is every bit of matter that we can see and not see, is energized by the omnipotent love flowing between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting application of the Trinity? If scientific evidence, she would say, if scientific evidence portrays a 14 billion year old universe, no problem. We can embrace evolution with no fight against the six day creation because God is intimately part of everything. Science and theology don't need to fight. The cosmos is a love story of a world inhabited by God and humanity together in union. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, 
My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is just the way Jesus put it. Paul says, God fills all in all in our text. God is the name we give to the whole thing. But Paul also says that Jesus was raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand in the heavenlies, above every name that is named. So Jesus Christ is the name of the whole thing too. And we know already from Pentecost Sunday that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus sent from the Father. And of course we read in Romans 8, he conveys our words to the Father with groans that cannot be uttered. Right? He's on our side, he's with us. So the Holy Spirit is the name of the whole thing too. In the Trinity, omnipotent love energizes the whole thing from subatomic particles to the galaxies, from the universe to planet Earth to you and to me. Transcendent love energizes you and me. And if at the count of three, God would cease to love us, at the count of three, you and I would cease to exist. So this brings me to a second practice in learning to, know, learning to know God and to love him. We learn to know God by loving others. Especially those we find hard to love. You know, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount that loving those who love us is no special thing, although it is a way of expressing our love for God. But we learn to know God by learning to love the other. Who are the others in our lives? Well, you know, it could be somebody close, but somebody you've had a fight with, right? Uh, maybe you've got a difference that you have a hard time getting over, and it could be a family member, it could be somebody at work, it could be somebody in church, uh, it could be somebody in your community, it could be somebody that's pushed your buttons on social media. The other could also be a person of a different color, different race, uh, different religion, a different sex orientation. There's lots of categories but God loves the other. So then the question is, can we too? It's not impossible, but it does take practice. Uh, Simone Campbell is really great at this. She says, you have to prepare your heart to love others and cross over some of those barriers through contemplation. This is how you prepare your heart. So what do you do? You wonder about them. You wonder what might they eat for dinner? What might they like that you like? You wonder what makes them tick. And then you grieve the gap that's between you. You pray about it. You wonder with God how you might close it. And then you fight, actually. You fight to close that gap. You take action that brings you together. You have coffee. You ask questions. You try to hear the other person's story. Right? It's a doable path, even though it might be a bit hard. But then Jesus added more to this challenge, a harder group called our opponents, or as Jesus called them, enemies. The bully who slaps you, turn the other cheek. The one who asks you or tells you, or orders you to carry his load for him, go, the next, go that extra mile. Jesus said, don't be angry or call him a fool, right? So we can do the same with an opponent that we do with the other, that is to say, wonder and grieve the gap and fight to close it. 
Sometimes an opponent will make us afraid and we fear for ourselves, so in that case we have to keep our distance. But sometimes an opponent makes us angry, in which case uh, Paul says, be angry but don't sin. In other words, step away, you can rage a bit in a safe place, but then take the edge off, re-engage to listen, and wonder once more how you might be able to come up with a solution together with the enemy, with the opponent. Even if offenses and hurts can't be undone, maybe you can reach out to each other and find space to tend wounds and to heal and to get along. I realize that's a massive challenge, but what I am trying to say is as we practice revolutionary love, we learn to know God. Why? Because we learn to love like God, right? God loves everything he has created. We learn to take in how, that God, how God feels about that person. And if at the count of three, God would cease to love that other, that opponent, then at the count of three, that other and that opponent would cease to exist. As we practice revolutionary love, we might learn to love the other and the opponent. And in that case, we embody the Trinity, the Trinity love template, and draw them with us towards a living God. Now, I've really ended off on a tremendous challenge, but when we learn to love one another, and even the other and the opponent, that is the pathway to loving and knowing God. So let's recap. God loves everything he has created, and so should we. Yes, God is another other, impossible to understand intellectually. So we learn to love him through our contemplative imagination and let that guide us onto our faith walk. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally in love, and the way we love God is to love others, even opponents like God does. Let's pray. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, so rich and pure, so measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Amen.